One an important announcement, lest you show up here on Wednesday night. Fear the rapture occurred without you. There will be no, there will be no class on Wednesday night. So you can sit at home and listen to the tape from this morning again, because I'm sure you won't get it all. Just a little warning. Okay. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lay not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, get the cobwebs out, confess any sins that need to be confessed, forget about yesterday, forget about this afternoon, get ready to focus on our lesson this morning. Let's pray. Father, again, we are grateful that we have this privilege and opportunity to gather together to fellowship around the teaching of your word. We're grateful for the freedoms that we have in this nation, that another week has gone by and you have protected this nation, you have preserved our freedoms, you have provided for us and supplied our needs, and for that we are grateful. Everything that we have in life is due to your grace and your goodness, and we express our gratitude each and every day. Father, we thank you for the provision of your word that sustains us spiritually, that provides us with the nourishment that we need in order to grow spiritually, and also supplies us with the information we need to properly understand the universe that you created, the world around us, and the social structures that you have established for the preservation and perpetuation and the freedom of the human race. Now, Father, as we study the things that we approach this morning in 1 Corinthians 12, we pray that you would help us to clearly understand what we have here, that we may be able to see how they apply in every dimension of our life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and I want to go back and pick up just a couple of things out of the third verse before we get into the next section. In the third verse, we read, Therefore, I make no, uh, no, second verse rather, You know that you, that you were Gentiles, carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. Now there, Paul is setting up for us the basic problem that occurs not only in Corinth, but it occurred a century later, as we'll see in a minute, in uh, in the New Testament church in the, in the second century. It occurs periodically in different manifestations throughout church history and occurs again today. And that is the problem of Christians who take with them all this baggage, intellectual baggage, religious baggage, from their pagan, unbelieving background, and they bring that with them into Christianity, and then you start, re- you start interpreting the Scripture in light of that frame of reference. And again and again and again, I have pointed out how important it is that when we are engaged in the process of Romans 12:2 to not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our thinking, that that means that we just have to tear down that whole thought process that characterized our life as an unbeliever. And this was the problem in Corinth, and they failed to do that, and they were still being heavily influenced by 
the religious systems that they had come out of. There were two problems, actually, in Corinth, two areas of influence. One is what we'll call the philosophical influence. And in their day, this was a problem with the Stoics and the Epicureans. But there were also various problems that sort of were residual effects in the culture that went back to Platonism and Aristotelianism. On the other side, you have the influence of their religions. And specifically here, we're talking about a set of religions known as mystery religions. Now, studying these mystery religions is something that has always fascinated me, and every time I get an opportunity, I go back and I review review the information on it and always pick up a few things that are somewhat new. What happens is that you, you really have both of these at play. Last time when I went over this, I may have oversimplified it. I wanted to set up a pattern that occurs throughout history. And in that pattern, you always see a certain cycle. And that cycle begins with a a religious belief. That religious belief then gets debunked by human reason, combination usually of rationalism and empiricism. In 5th century B.C., this is uh, evidenced through the thinking of Socrates, Aristotle, and Plato. Then eventually you realize that both rationalism and empiricism are bankrupt. Reason alone and experience alone is never enough to get us to the ultimate realities of life. And see, philosophy, this is just, this, the class this morning is almost philosophy 101. Philosophy deals with the same basic questions that theology deals with, apart from, except it excludes revelation. You have uh, ultimate rea- what I'll call ultimate reality, and this is termed metaphysics. Then you have the realm of knowledge, and this is called epistemology. How do you know what you know? What's your ultimate basis for truth? And we study that all the time here in terms of your basic systems of perception. How do you know what you know? Rationalism, empiricism, mysticism, and revelation. Then you have uh, ethics. What are your value systems? And then in in, uh, some breakdowns, you also have a fourth category, aesthetics, which is your basis for beauty. But what we're really concerned with is these first two branches, ultimate reality and knowledge, metaphysics or epistemology, And what they try to understand is, can you get to an understanding of that which is beyond the physical? That's what metaphysics means. What's beyond the physical? Can you get out there to a spiritual world, the the existence of God, on the basis of reason alone and empiricism alone? Because, rightly so, philosophers understand that everything in life, everything that you and I hold dear ultimately is traced back to your, your, your metaphysic, your ultimate view of reality. Now, most people don't ever think about these things. Most people aren't even trained to think about these things. And yet, when you study anything in life, whether it's law, and we have many issues facing us related today in our culture related to law and legal theory, issues related to liberty and freedom, All of these are very important subjects that affect us on a day-to-day basis. Law, uh, how you organize government, marriage, family, uh, all your various social relationships. Uh, Law has to do, of course, with the whole issue ultimately of, of ethics. But all of these, when you push them back far enough... You get back to metaphysics. Other areas, you have science and music. I'm running out of space here. Science and music all go back ultimately to a metaphysic. Now, what's happened in American culture, because we're so bright and wonderful and we're so brilliant, is that we've decided we don't ever need to think in terms of what goes on up here at this level. And that is partly the result of where philosophy went 
at the end of the 1700s and early 1800s because of the influence of a German philosopher by the name of Immanuel Kant. And Immanuel Kant said that, well, basically he divided reality into two spheres. And I've used the illustration of a two-story house. The upper story has to do with what I've just talked about in terms of metaphysics, ultimate reality, that's beyond reason and experience. You can't get there. You can't see it. You can't feel it. You can't taste it. You can't touch it. This is the area of transcendent values of uh, universals. God. We'll put all this upstairs. Downstairs, you have all the details in life. All the details I just talked about, whether you talk uh, science, law, politics, family, art, music, all these things exist downstairs. Now, Kant came along and said, ultimately, man can't get upstairs. There's a wall here that is impenetrable. You can't get there from here, period, over and out. But see, it's the transcendent values that give meaning to the particulars down here. If you don't have transcendent values of something of a transcendent good, then how can you make a decision down here regarding law? So we have to live, this is the problem that was recognized, we have to live as if there is this transcendent overarching value. Now, if you can't get there on the basis of reason or empiricism, how do you get there? Well, we can't live as if it doesn't exist, so we just have to live like it does exist. And that is what is meant by a phrase that was developed by Kierkegaard called the leap of faith. You just leap. See, sometimes I'll hear Christians say, well, Christianity is a leap of faith. You ever say that, you're into pure, unadulterated, 19th century Protestant liberalism. Christianity is not irrational. That's what this leap of faith is. It's, I'm just going to believe it. There's no reason to. There's no experience supporting the position. There's no logic supporting it. But I have to live as if this exists. So I'm just going to take this leap of faith and live as if it does. And that position became known as existentialism, and we studied that a little bit before. When you push existentialism all the way to its end result, you end up with postmodernism, which is where we are in the early 21st century. Now, let me back up, back up the diagram a little bit and see where, where we are. So what we're, what we're talking about here is the realm of, of metaphysics is talking about universals, and down here, when we talk about law, government, family, social life, science, music, all of these things, we're talking about details are particulars. Another way to put it is up here you're talking about uh, universals. Down here you're talking about individuals. Another way that it's expressed in philosophy is up here you're talking about the one, unity, and down here, you're talking about the many. You have many different individuals, many different people, all the different details. Think about it as a football team. Down here, you have the members of the team. And up here, you have the team as a whole. Okay? Now, if you just stick one, football, one, one player out there on the field, he really isn't going to do much good. He gains his value only in terms of how he functions with the whole team. Okay, now I'm beginning to make sense to everybody. See, it's how does the individual relate to the whole and the whole to the individual. But if you destroy the concept of universals, which is basically what Kant did, that you can't get there on the basis of, of uh, reason or experience, what do you end up with? You end up with this, this illogical leap of faith, which in effect is a result of, of skepticism. Well, you can't learn truth. This was David Hume in the late... 1700. You can't know God. You can't know good. You can't know universals. There are no miracles. That's a skeptical position. So you move down this, down this chain here. Where was I? Okay. You move down this chain 
from a religious belief that seems to explain everything to an attack by rationalism and empiricism that destroys the religion, but ultimately neither reason nor experience can give you any meaning. That ends up in skepticism. Skepticism, in turn, you can't live with, so that always ends up in some sort of mysticism. Some sort of intuitivism. That's what that leap of faith is. It's just an expression of mysticism. Now, that doesn't mean, when you have this historical flow here, that these mystical ideas weren't present in these early, earlier phases, because they definitely were. Now, let's look at this again in terms of how it worked itself out in ancient Greece. You had the old Olympian religions. They were pretty much debunked by uh, Aristotle and Plato. But this, in turn, led to a form of skepticism. What skepticism couldn't live with was, was that reason and experience can't quite give us answers. So we have to live as if something's true. We have to have some real meaning in life. And so they reached back to a much earlier stage, and they pulled in a group of religions that had been developing over the centuries that can trace their way all the way back to Babylon. And we're going to call, and they're called the mystery religions. And these mystery religions and mystery cults dominated the first century Greek world, second century BC, third century BC Greek world. And if you want to know what the mystery religions were like, they were very similar to New Age thinking today. I mean, a heavy emphasis on emotion, uh, ecstatics. There was a lot of emphasis on certain kinds of music. The music that they used served a religious purpose. See, we, as a result of Kant, this is heavy. As a result of Kant, see, we have to understand our culture and why we are where we are. I was just having had a great conversation, long conversation yesterday morning with uh, our good friend Charlie Clough, and we were discussing the problem. Why is it that in many of our churches today, you have parents who come and they like the Bible teaching, and their kids come and the kids go, you know, there's not much there. I want to go to XYZ Church down the street, and they've got a praise band, and they've got praise and worship music, and it just feels good, and that's where the kids want to go. That's where they have a Friday night youth rally and all this other stuff, and they sing all these choruses. And the parents say, well, that's great, but we're going to go where our kids like to go, and they're going to go down there, which shows who really runs the house. That's another problem. But what... What the question is, is nobody, why does that happen? It's because nobody's teaching what I'm teaching you this morning. And that is that that music that you and I grew up with, the, 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 there's a philosophy behind it. Music just doesn't pop out of nowhere. Plato used to say, if you want to change your culture, change the music. He got it backwards. Music reflects a change that's already occurred. Music, now I'm not talking about the words, I'm talking about the style of music itself. The style of music, its structure. And I, I, I don't have a PhD in musicology, and I wish I did, and I wish I could talk to some, some people who understood it. But the problem we get today is, once again, when you talk about law, economics, I, I've run into this again and again in talking about people in the field of economics. They don't understand philosophy of economics. You can't have a conversation on economics if people don't understand metaphysics and epistemology. You can't have a decent conversation with somebody on politics and law if they don't understand philosophy of law and, and, and uh, met the metaphysics and epistemology behind it. Same thing in science. You get out there and you talk about the details of the fossil record, you talk about the details of dating. All of this is governed ultimately by a philosophy of science, metaphysics and epistemology, except what happens is we send our kids off to school and they study biology and science and they spend all their time studying the details. Go back to that chart. They spend all of that time studying the details of law or politics or economics or sociology, the details in art or in music, but they don't ever get to that 
rationale that lies underneath or behind it, the hidden assumptions, which is philosophy. And all of every area of this came out of philosophy. You go back a thousand years, and these were all branches of theology. They didn't know that much detail, on, on especially in science and some of these other areas, but what you were studying was was the philosophy, you had to understand that before you could ever approach the details. But Kant, when he destroys in the late 1700s the idea of transcendental values and universals, he basically destroys philosophy. That's why when you get into contemporary philosophy, for example, with Wittgenstein and others, where you get into uh, a lot of uh, uh positivism and analysis, all you can do is go in here and focus at every little detail. But you can't get up here and talk about universals anymore because man can't know universals anymore because there is no God, he isn't there, and he doesn't speak. That's why I've been emphasizing in the last few weeks that God is there and he speaks. He has communicated to us, and that is why in divine viewpoint, revelation is so radically different. We're going to start with what God says about the universe, and we're not going to start with what man has said about the universe. And this is fundamental, and this is why I mentioned this last time. When I first went to went to seminary, uh, ch- church history professor that I had, Dr. John Hanna, made the comment that the problem we have in Christianity today is an epistemological problem. And I scratched my head and said, what's it? epistemological? What does that mean? See, we live in a world where we, can't even, we don't even have the vocabulary among everyday people to even explain and understand what the problems are. And so all we want to do is go to church and feel good. And that is exactly the situation in the first, second century B.C. They just wanted to have a religion that made them feel good. And that was the mystery religions. And there was this heavy, heavy emphasis on emotion and feeling, and there's no rational content to it at all. There's no thinking. It's just driven by music, 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 drum beats. They go up into the uh, uh, groves and special uh, sacred areas where they would carry on their rites, and they would have uh, certain kinds of music, and they would have torchlight, and they would drink lots of wine and get drunk, and then they would have their have orgies and all. All kinds of different things went on depending on which cult you were associated with, which group you were associated with. But this was the background in Corinth. Religion is viewed as something that uh, very close to what Marx referred to when he said that Christianity was the opium of the masses. It just religion was something that deadened you, made you feel good, deadened the pain and the misery of having to deal with a, a life where there was no hope, no meaning, and no value. Think about it. In light of Kantian, Kantian philosophy, if you can't know God, if this wall here is impenetrable, and you can't get above it to universals, to, to universal good and bad, you can't get up there to transcendental values, you can't get there to God, then there's no hope in life. You're pretty miserable. How do you know what's good or bad? You don't. There's no basis. That's what, this is what's happened in our society, why we have these struggles all the time over defining marriage and, and sexuality and homosexuality and trying to define uh, so many things as to what's good and what's bad is because at the very core level in our society, we've rejected the idea that there are absolutes and universals. Now, what happened in, in the ancient world is you came along with these different mystery religions and there were uh, three or four that were the most influential on the Corinthians. The first had to do with the worship of Apollo. They're all interconnected and I think all of this goes back to uh, demon involvement at the time of the flood. Either demon involvement before the flood may have been part of it. Then there was some demonic involvement after the flood in terms of what was going on at the Tower of Babel. And maybe the 
there were certain legends or certain stories that were passed on by Ham, Shem, and Japheth to their sons about what was going on before the flood. And in the process, that got all turned around and that became the foundation for these mythologies. Because if you, whether you're talking about Babylonian religions, Egyptian religion, Greek religions, or Assyrian religions, they all have the same basic people, the same basic names, the same basic ideas. They just have a few details that are different. Now, there were a number of temples to Apollo in Corinth, but the one that we're most concerned with, if you come down, the uh, here's, here's the uh, Corinthian Isthmus right here, and, and here's Greece comes down, something like that. This is, I didn't have a good map uh, to show you this morning. And there's an Isthmus right here where you cross over from the uh, peninsula where uh, Corinth is located, up onto the, the mainland of, of Greece. And just across the isthmus, isthmus of Corinth is the Temple of Delphi, the Oracle of Delphi, which was a very famous site in the ancient world. And there was a priestess that occupied the chair there, and she was a priestess to Apollo, and she's called the Oracle at Delphi. And anybody in the ancient world who wanted to know the future uh, didn't have to pick up the paper and look in the astrology column on the back page. They just went to the Oracle of Delphi. And the Oracle of Delphi was said to be possessed by a spirit of the of the python. She had always had a snake with her, and we know that that has certain uh, imagery from the scripture. She had a uh, pneuma pythonos. And it was this Numa Pythanos that spoke through the oracle, and she would speak in ecstatic utterances, what we'll just call gibberish. It was just meaningless utterances, but it was allegedly the god Apollo speaking through her. So this was something that everybody accepted and believed to be true, is that, that she spoke, when she spoke with these in these ecstatic utterances, then um, then she she was speaking the words of Apollo. Now, according to the mythology, this snake, this python, was a snake that guarded the oracle at Delphi, and Apollo kills the serpent, kills the python, and establishes his own worship at that particular uh, location. The prophetess is known as Pythia, named for the uh, Puthanas demon, and she utters these these sayings in these miraculous languages. Now we have a quote preserved for us in history from Chrys- Chrysostom, who was one of the early church fathers who lived from 347 A.D. to 407 A.D. And Chrysostom describes what went on at the Oracle of Delphi. He says, "Quote the same." Pythoness, then, is said, being a female, to sit at times upon the tripod of Apollo astride, and thus the evil spirit ascending from beneath and entering the lower part of her body fills the woman with madness, and she with disheveled hair begins to play the bacchanal and to foam at the mouth, and thus being in a frenzy to utter the words of her madness." So this gives us one thing that was going on. Now, Apollo is also related to a second character, and that is Dionysius, also known as Bacchus. Dionysius or Bacchus. And Dionysius is the god of wine, and he had a major uh, impact on mystery religions. There's an entire cult just devoted to Dionysius, and he had his origin over in what is now modern Turkey, in the middle of modern Turkey. One of the areas was called Phrygia. And he came out of that area, but he's also known by some other names. He's known by Attis, uh, which comes out of the uh, that Turkish area. And also Thrace was the northern Greece area. He's known as Attis. That was the, this is a third uh, mystery cult that dominated the ancient world, and that's the Sibylle Attis cult. And Dionysius was related, this was 
Attis was another name for him. He was also known as Osiris in Egyptian literature. In Syrian, he was known as and Canaanite. He was known as Tammuz, a number of other different names. But he shows up in a number of different different cults. But under the Dionysian cult that developed in Asia Minor, or what we now call Turkey, it was one of the most uh, dynamic of the mystery religions. And he had a, it was primarily focused on women, and they were known as maenads, and when they would go up into these groves or uh, areas, the sacred areas where they would worship, they would go up there at night and they were carrying torches and they would have a beat of the drum, they would play flutes and they would uh, dance in this, these wild ecstatic dances until they got all worked up and of course they were drinking an enormous amount of wine and in some accounts in the earlier times they would take, a, uh, a, take animals and they would just rip them apart uh, limb from limb, eat the raw fl- flesh and then at the height of this, this whole thing is just kind of an ascending fervor And at the very height, then the god Dionysius would, if they were lucky, would inhabit them, possess them, and then speak through them in ecstatic utterances. So that was going on in the uh, Dionysian cult. And, of course, the counterfeit idea there is pretty obvious when you start thinking about the Corinthian background in tongues and what was going on on there. There... Dionysius was also associated with his third group, the Sibylle Attis cult, which uh, Sibylle was the mother earth goddess, and she gives birth to Attis. Now, this is also known in Isis, Osiris cult, and some other cults, and it's a satanic counterfeit of the, of the virgin birth idea that uh, God had announced, Satan figures it out ahead of time, and he begins to try to counterfeit that through the various mythologies so that he's trying to head things off at the past. So when the virgin birth comes along and people start uh, worshiping Christ and emphasizing his unique birth, then that wouldn't seem to be so different. You have all these other mythological uh, goddesses who gave uh, gave birth as as virgins, and there usually what would happen is the the sun would die in the fall and be brought back to life in the spring. So you have a resurrection motif. You have all of these ideas that Satan is using to counterfeit Christianity. Well, this the Sibylle Attis cult operated primarily over in the area now is known as Turkey or Asia Minor, and in their rites, the priests would become, uh, get everybody all excited and would work everybody up through using various cymbals and banging drums and loud gongs. Something like Paul refers to in verse 1 of chapter 13, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. See, that's where he's getting that imagery. He's not just making it up. It's not something that he's coming up with as a nice metaphor. He's using imagery that comes out of those mystery religions. And so they operated, uh, they were a satanic counterfeit that would promote a level of spirituality. What people were concerned about was salvation. They wanted to have some sense of a, a relationship and unity with God, and if they would come into this kind of a unity with God, then life would be wonderful. And so it was measured, the criterion for measuring their relationship with God was all based on emotion and ecstatics. Now this is a concept we have to come back and and talk about. I have a book I brought with me this morning, an excellent reference book called The Greeks and Their Gods by a very well-known uh, classical Greek scholar, W.K.C. Guthrie, and I wanted to read a couple of uh, his descriptions of what went on in the worship of Dionysus. He was referred to as the god of ecstasy. He writes that uh, describing their worship, 
clad in fawn skins and taking in their hands the thrissos, which was a long rod tipped with a bunch of ivy or vine leaves, the god's own potent emblem. And with ivy wreaths upon their heads, they followed their leader to the wildest parts of the mountains, lost in the bliss of the dance. See, they just wipe out all reason through the use of music and dancing. Many carry snakes wreathed about them, twined in their hair, grasped in the hand, as may be seen on vase paintings. Their dance is accompanied, and their passions are roused by the heavy beat of the tympanum, which was a drum, and the strains of the reed flute, as well as their own excited shouts and cries. Nothing is lacking which can serve to increase the sense of exaltation and of shedding the self of everyday existence, to the darkness, the music, and the rhythmic dance are added the smoky light of torches and no doubt the God's special gift of wine. So they really had a party. But the whole idea is just to, to get away from thinking and thought and everyday existence into this non-thinking emotional state. He says, uh, of wine, it may indeed be said that little would be needed in combination with the other elements to produce the final state of ecstasis. That's, where, that's the Greek word from which we get our word ecstasy. And it means standing outside oneself and enthusiasmos, possession by the God. It's interesting that in English the word enthusiasm used to refer to emotions. That back in the 1700s, uh, as you saw certain elements in evangelicalism starting to move in an emotional direction, there was fear of th- those who were enthusiastics. That's what they were called. They were the early, early stages of what had developed into the charismatic movement. In this state, the worshippers saw visions. Nothing was impossible to them. The ground flowed with milk, wine, and honey. Endowed with superhuman strength, they hurl themselves upon animals, wild or tame, tear them to pieces with their bare hands, and for the joy of the raw feast. Charged with divine power, their thirsty, that's, that's the um, long rod tipped with the ivy, become deadly weapons that can put armed men to flight. They carry fire on their heads and are not burned. Now, isn't that interesting? Now, that's what the Greeks thought of as religion before Paul showed up and gave them the gospel. Now, this is what they brought with them when they came over into into Christianity and began to uh, confuse various spiritual gifts with what they had experienced in their mystery religions. So Paul says back in verse 2 of chapter 12, you know that you, when you were Gentiles, you, you were carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. The dumb idols don't speak. He's noticed the emphasis there. They, they really don't speak. And we've seen other passages in 1 Corinthians and in the Old Testament where the reality behind these idols are demons. And so this is all part of the subtle deception of Satan that he uses to destroy mankind and distract him from the worship of God. Now in verse 3, we read, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And last time I pointed out that this is not a formula. Some people think that this is some kind of formula and you always find a charismatic or Pentecostal that comes along and says, well, if you're, if you're doing an exorcism, if, if they can say Jesus is Lord, then, then they're not demon possessed. And that's just total misunderstanding of the passage. Excuse me. Actually, what Paul is getting at here is that unless it's, it, it, you're filled with the Spirit, you won't understand the full deity of Jesus Christ. And if you are not filled with the Spirit, then you will have a distorted Christology, which is what I pointed out last time. Then we come to verse 4. But one thing I want to hit on, just before we got, I started to get to this point and then I got distracted. Ecstasy. Let's talk about ecstasy a minute. Because every now and then you'll hear somebody make some comment that that God will use ecstasy perhaps in the millennium. 
Ecstasy is an emotional state. It is a non-rational condition where the reason is totally removed from the scenario. Now, the only basis for this is a passage that we'll, ha- we'll hit again and again as we deal with this tongues issue going through these passages, and that's in Joel 2. So let's turn, hold your place in 1 Corinthians and turn back in the Old Testament to Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2. Now, the context of Joel 2 is very important. If we are going to properly interpret Joel 2 before we can understand any allusion to it in the New Testament, we have to know what is going on in Joel. And Joel is describing the tribulation under the nomenclature of the day of the Lord. He's describing what is going to take place at the end of the tribulation period. And then he and he describes the fact that during this time, despite all of the horrors that take place, that Israel will turn back to God. And in verse 18 we read, Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied by them. I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations. Has that happened yet? No, that has not happened yet. Israel is still a millstone and a reproach to the nations. There are still anti-Semites in the world, and they dominate. And so verse 19 indicates that this is what God is going to do to regenerate Israel at the end of the tribulation. So that sets our time frame. Now go to verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward. After what? After the end of the tribulation. So this locates us. We are now in the church age. Church age began on the day of Pentecost, approximately 33 A.D., Fifty days after Christ was crucified on the cross, the Holy Spirit descended, Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost. That began the church age, and the church age ends at some uh, indeterminate time in the future when Jesus Christ returns in the clouds at an event known as the rapture of the church. When those who are dead in Christ shall be Caught up first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds, and thus we shall ever be with the Lord. This precedes a seven-year period known as the tribulation. The rapture doesn't start the tribulation as we've studied, but the rapture comes before the tribulation. The tribulation begins when the Antichrist signs a peace treaty with Israel. That starts the kickdown of what's called Daniel's 70th week, and it ends... When Jesus Christ returns to the earth, he is in the clouds at the rapture. He returns to the earth at the end of the tribulation. This is what we're talking about here. When Israel has been in the land, the uh, regenerate Jews have heeded the warnings of Matthew 24. They've headed off to the hills down uh, in Basra, down across the Jordan And God is going to protect them. There they call upon the name of the Lord in order to be saved. And that's the passage that we're talking about right here. And God will deliver them. And so God prophesies through Joel about that time. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Is it on all flesh now? No, it's only believers. This is not talking about church age Holy Spirit. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Now that's as far as I want to look at this passage this time. We'll come back and look at it again in relation to Acts 2 and speaking in tongues and that later on. But I just want to point out the fact that here talks about your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Three activities that were not unknown in the Old Testament. We have prophecy, dreams, and visions. 
And when we were studying in Daniel, we studied some about dreams and visions, and dreams usually occurred when the individual was asleep, and visions might occur when the individual was awake, but sometimes they occurred when he was also asleep. And these are almost uh, identical in meaning there's a little bit of difference. Prophecy. Now this, there's the rub, as Shakespeare said. We have to recognize what prophecy is. Now prophecy, as you'll often hear it taught, and I'm going to debunk this in a minute, prophecy has two elements. Prophecy has an element where you foretell, that's telling the future ahead of time, and an, then they'll introduce a second. It, it preaches well when you get this kind of alliteration, forthtelling, where you're basically uh, challenging people to obedience to the word. And what you'll normally see happen with people who haven't had enough time in the text or study the issues is they'll say, well, the foretelling element isn't there anymore, and what we have is the foretelling element, and so prophecy is now basically the same as preaching. Well, that is so untrue, I can't even characterize it with the word that should be used in mixed company. It is just garbage, Kubala, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. It's just manure. Prophecy always had some element of foretelling. The foretelling had to do with the application of the prophecy in the current age. But you never separate the two. The, it, prophecy in the Scripture always has a predictive Element. Now, prophets may have preached and had a, a, a sermon that was just in current application, but then it wasn't prophecy. They were just preaching or proclaiming a message that had a current application. Now, when they prophesied, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Joel, Amos, you read, you read their prophecies, do you think their mind was disengaged? Their mind was not disengaged. Their mind, they were very rational. When even though they may have been unconscious, asleep, and having a dream, their mind was active. You read in Daniel 7, Daniel 5, when Daniel is having the, the dreams, and in the dream, what happens? An angel appears to him and speaks to him, and he communicates. What does this mean? This means this, the angel would say. And that means this. And it would explain each detail in the prophecy. He is his. It's a rational thought process going on. This is not the same thing as what's happening in these kinds of ecstatics that took place in the mystery religions and the counterfeit religions and the Babylonian religions that dominated all the pagan cultures surrounding Israel. Ecstatics was the modus operandi of false religion, always, and it always excluded reason, and the use of the mind. God never expects us to put our thinking on hold. And when we come to the future, when you have the future events of prophecy, dreams, and visions mentioned in Joel 2, it's going to function the same way that it did in the Old Testament. It's still going to involve the use of the mind and the thought processes of the individual. It's not this vacuous, emotive state where God disengages the mind. That never happens. It's just an absurd concept. Ecstatics is always the modus operandi of the unbeliever. It's always the modus operandi of paganism. And it's never the modus operandi of God. God never expects you to disengage your mind and disengage your thinking. So I just wanted to lay that to rest before we went any further. This is going to be important when we come to the tongues issue and we get into chapter 13. And chapter 13 talks about the fact that knowledge and prophecy will be abolished. Well, it's not talking about knowledge in terms of knowing something. That's talking about the gift of knowledge in that particular passage. But it's talking about knowledge and prophecy will be abolished. Well, one of the arguments that has surfaced in recent years is that, well, the gift of tongues and knowledge and prophecy must continue because you still have prophecy at the end of the tribulation. So if, if, if knowledge and prophecy are going to cease, it can't be until the end of the tribulation because Joel 2 says they're still going to be operative at the end of the tribulation. Now, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that is 
the knowledge and prophecy and tongues that are being talked about in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 are what? Spiritual gifts. And a spiritual gift, by definition in the Scripture, is a gift by God the Holy Spirit to each and every believer in what age? In the church age. What's happening in Joel 2? What age is that? That's Israel. That is not a spiritual gift. Even though you had prophecy in the Old Testament, it wasn't a spiritual gift. It is a gift of God, perhaps, but it's not a spiritual gift. It is under that definition. And you're going to have a restoration of prophecy at the end of the tribulation in relationship to Israel, but that's not a spiritual gift. The spiritual gift is what ceased, and that has to do with the church. So if you don't understand dispensations, you're going to have some major problems with understanding the cessation of tongues and the cessation of the gifts. Now that's why in the history of the charismatic movement, in the early years, many of them were dispensational, but it was a bad marriage. And that's why they've been divorcing dispensationalism for the past 30 years, and many of them trying to get rid of it, and why they've gone into kingdom noun, dominion theology, and, and post-millennialism is because they realize that at the very core of the charismatic uh, thought is the idea of some sort of restoration and end-time revival that would be ushered in by all of this, that would be characterized by the Joel 2 uh, prophecy, which they would refer to, which they do refer to as uh, latter rain blessing, and that's where that terminology comes from. And this whole idea of some sort of end-time revival, restoration before Jesus can come back, is completely counter to dispensationalism. Because dispensationalism understands the biblical truth that the return of Christ is imminent. That means nothing has to take place before Jesus can come back at the rapture. Not a end-time revival, not a restoration of the gifts of prophecy. Nothing happens or has to happen before Jesus can come back at the rapture. So all of this fits together. Now, I realize this is a broad stroke here. We're going to hit this again and again and again as we go through these next three chapters because the problem with interpreting 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 today is that if you don't understand the isagogics, if you don't understand the background, if you're not looking at it through the eyes of the first century church and all the cultural and religious dynamics that were taking place, then you're just going to miss all the subtleties and all the main points that are going on there. Now let's turn back to 1 Corinthians 12 and look at the next three verses. Verses 4, 5, and 6. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. Now, what we have in these three verses is a clear expression, an affirmation of the Trinity, even though the term Trinity is not used and the term Trinitas is not coined for another 150 years or so by Tertullian, you still have a clear statement of the doctrine of the Trinity here. Now, let's go back to our introduction of the message. Philosophy has to deal with, as its fundamental fundamental categories, metaphysics, ultimate reality. But see, you can't get to the Trinity on reason alone, can you? You can't get to the Trinity on the basis of experience. You can't, when, when all that, that philosophy may get to is that there's something out there, but we don't know anything about it. Well, if you don't know anything about the something, then you don't know what the something is. You can't call the something God, because unless you know something about its attributes and characteristics, you don't know if it is a God or not. And that's why ultimately the arguments for the arguments for the existence of God don't necessitate a Christian God. They just argue that's why why Aristotle caused it called it the uncaused cause. It's just some kind of being out there perhaps, but we don't know anything about it. We have a what but not a that and if you don't or, uh, I mean, excuse me, you have a that, that that something exists, but you don't have a what, you don't know what it is, you don't know its essence, its attributes, you can't identify it as such. Now, that will cause you, give you something to think about over lunch. Okay, what you have going on here in these three verses is one of the most profound applications in Paul's thought. 
that very few people take time to, to, to really study. I want you to keep your hand here, keep your place here in 1 Corinthians 12, and I want you to turn over to Ephesians. 2 Corinthians, Galatians, and then Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. We've already studied this a little bit back in August when we were studying the ascension and session of Christ. Ephesians 4, verses 8 to 11, is another key passage on the spiritual gifts. Actually, 8 to 12. Another key passage on the giving of spiritual gifts. Now, how does Paul set up his discussion on the spiritual gifts before he gets to verse 7? He talks about unity. Verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So we're talking about unity here. So let's draw a line up here, and we're going to... On the left-hand side, we're going to write unity. On the right-hand side, we're going to write the word diversity. And Paul is absolutely... He can't think this way. You cannot think like Paul thinks in 1 Corinthians 12 unless you are presupposing a triune God. And that's the assumption of all Christian knowledge is that ultimate reality is a triune God and you have to unpack the significance of that if we're going to understand any of the details in life. We have to understand the implications and significance of the doctrine of the Trinity and having a triune God. That's why they spent, or part of the reason they spent 200 years in the early church trying to figure out how to accurately and precisely explain the concept of the Trinity. Paul says in these verses, there are diversities of gifts. So over here you have uh, diversity of gifts. But there is what? The same Spirit. So we have unity over here, same Spirit. Then we, in the fifth verse, there are differences of ministries. So over here we have different ministries. Everybody's got a different ministry, but the same Lord. So we have the same Lord. And then in verse 6, there are diversities of activities. So we'll, on the right side, we'll put uh, activities. And then we have the same God. And there the reference is to God the Father. So here we have the a Trinitarian statement. On the one hand, there is unity, and that unity operates because there is one God. But that one God has what? Three persons. Now let me remind you about the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity says that God is one in essence. This is where you get into a whole new level of math, folks. This is Christian math. God is one in essence, and He is at the same time three in person. Now, He's not three different persons. That would be tritheism. Three completely different gods, three different essences, three different persons. He's not one essence that just expresses Himself in three different ways. That's called, that was called in the ancient world, that was called the heresy of modalism. That you just have one God and for a while he shows himself as father and then he changes his mask, puts on another mask, that's the idea of persona. And he puts on another mask and he's the son and then he takes that mask off and he puts on another mask and now he's the Holy Spirit. He's one in essence, but he's three distinct persons. Now, let's go back tie this together for you as we go through Philosophy 101 this morning. Let's go back to what we were talking about earlier. We have a problem that philosophy always runs into. They can't solve this tension. It goes back to the ancient world. In the ancient world, in the ancient world you had, um, prior to Socrates, you had a guy named Parmenides. 
and another man named Heraclitus. And when Heraclitus was thinking about, you know, when he pushed reality back and you push back and you push back and you push back, what's out there? What is it? He said the overriding principle of everything is change, or what he called becoming. And Parmenides, if you push it back, push it back, he said ultimately it's, it is uh, being or uh, stability. Nothing is, nothing is changing, no change. Everything, you get back, what you ultimately have is just a monad, and everything is the same. There's, there's ultimately no distinction. This is the big tension that has plagued man in terms of the pro- problems in the way he, th- he thinks throughout the ages, is how do you resolve this problem? It's called the problem of being and becoming the one and the many. Remember I talked about the fact that when you come to... Uh, Let's draw a diagram here with Kant. Upstairs you had universals, and downstairs you had particulars, and the particulars got their meaning from the universals. Universals have to do with the one, particulars have to do with the many. And everybody either goes to one edge of that, they either go over here or they go over here. They either so emphasize the unity that they diminish the diversity or the parts, or they get over here, they emphasize the parts, and they diminish the whole. Let's put it, you got a football team. Over here, you either emphasize the team so much that you, it, that you lose sight of training your individual players, or you emphasize the individual so much that you lose your teamwork. There's always that tension. Now, I'm going to bring this home in a, in a very real way. In, in just a minute, because this is the foundation for everything. People never, never understand these things. It's a problem with music. It's a problem with, you know, good music has resolution. It builds tension. It goes to a climax, and then there's resolution. Bad music, i.e., most modern rock music, doesn't have resolution. It just creates tension because it comes out of existentialism. That there's no hope. There's no real ultimate meaning. There's no real resolution. So what happened with the hippie generation and the Jesus freaks in the late 60s is they were playing rock and they wanted music that they were familiar with, so they went out and they just put Christian words to rock music. No resolution. And then what happens by 30 years later, we're singing it in most of our churches. You've got a band up there singing and you've got Christian rock and what you've got is a music that is completely at odds with the message. Why? Because nobody knows philosophy, nobody can think, nobody studies these things, and you start talking to anybody, especially about music, you're stepping on people's toes. I like that music. Well, I do too. That's, I grew up in the 60s generation. I enjoy that music. I enjoy all kinds of music. It doesn't have anything to do with what you like. We've got to disabuse ourselves of that notion. It's what shows an honest reflection of the creation that God made. Another example, you make a simple math statement, 2 plus 2 equals 4. You know you have no right to make that unless you're, you believe in a Trinitarian God. Why? Okay, you have 2 plus 2. If you, in mathematics, you have set theory. These numerals, 2, represents two distinct things. That's your diversity over here. You have two distinct things and two distinct things. But in order to make the statement 2 plus 2 equals 4, you have to have some sort of universal truth, some sort of universal transcendental law of mathematics, the one over here. You have to have unity and diversity both. Let's, let's apply it to politics. We're running out of time. Let's apply it to politics. If you get into politics and you emphasize the diversity, each individual, to the exclusion of the unity, you end up with an extreme democracy like you had in Athens that ultimately breaks down into anarchy because you're putting all your emphasis on the individual and not on the unity. If you, on the other hand, in in political political theory, put all your emphasis on the one instead of the many, you're putting all your emphasis on the state, and the state is what matters. You have a statement like... uh, uh, who was it, Louis the Fourteenth? I am France. doesn't matter who the people are. They're irrelevant. It just matters the government. You have totalitarianism. Communism said they were putting the emphasis on the people, but ultimately it broke down because it, 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 it's almost like a circle. 
And when you get to one extreme, you're almost back over to the other, and it's self-destructive. And let's bring it down home now. In marriage, see, this is what happens in marriage. See, if you have a Trinitarian view of reality, then you can put an emphasis on the whole, which is the marriage, and the parts have equal value. Because in the Trinity, the one is as important as the parts, and the parts are as important as the whole, so that you can say that in marriage, the two become what? One flesh. One plus one equals one. That's Christian math. Biblical math. The two become one. So you can have the importance of the whole and the importance of the individuals. Now, part of the problem that we have as believers in America, in Western, in in our society, is we put so much individual on individual rights, the individual uh, position, what they do, that you lose sight of the whole. And we bring that into the church, and it affects our view of the body of Christ. Because the body of Christ is one body. It is one body. There's an emphasis on the importance of the body of Christ as well as the individual gifts. But if you are pushing it out here, influenced by uh, American individualism and the ideas of importance of individual liberty and everybody doing what they want to do, what you end up with is what's my spiritual gift, what's my spiritual gift, what can I do, what can I do, and the emphasis on me, 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 and you end up with this breakdown of the body of Christ. But you come back and you have a Trinitarian look where you emphasize the whole. The whole body working together as a team is also important. They're both important. You can't emphasize one without sacrificing the other. And only on the basis of of an assumption of reality that goes back to the Trinity can you really come up with a solid political theory, a solid economic theory, a solid legal theory, and, and, and it also impacts the body of Christ. But notice, this is what Paul's doing here. When he gets ready to talk about the importance of, of all the individual gifts, what does he do? He goes back to the unity. He goes back to one God, one Spirit, one Lord. He goes back to the unity of the Trinity, and then he talks about the diversities. And he's going to go back and forth throughout this whole chapter on individual gifts, but don't lose sight of the fact that they function as part of a whole team. And they all go together. And what happens is when you come at this influenced by some sort of human viewpoint background, like the Greeks did, where it was all about me, 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 in their subjectivistic, emotional religion, just like the modern evangelicals, whether they're charismatic or not, I don't care. Whether they believe in speaking their tongues or not, they are functional charismatics because they become emotional. And the emphasis on what is what I get out of church and how I feel and what the music does to me, and they've lost sight of the fact that we're there to worship God, and it's part of a whole team function that is designed towards edification and maturity of the believer to glorify God. So we'll get into the gifts in detail when I get back, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, and we pray that you would just uh, help us to understand the things that we've studied today. They get pretty profound in some of the application, but the bottom line is the importance of the body of Christ as a whole, as well as the value of each individual and the importance of each individual in the whole. Father, we pray that you would uh, challenge anyone here this morning that if they're not uh, saved, if they have uh, no confidence in their eternal life or their eternal destiny, they would realize that our only confidence is in Jesus Christ. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Salvation is not based on who we are. Salvation is not based on a a moral transformation. It's not based on our own good deeds or sacramental involvement or any other human factor. It is based exclusively on what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And we make that our own simply by trusting that his work is sufficient. Father, we pray that you would help us to think through these things and see how they apply to our own life and our own thinking. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.